This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hey, everybody. This is the one. I'm Greg Gutfeld. Well, my dream has come true. I've been uh, hounding this poor woman for months to to get her on my show. Uh, you probably know who she is because I've been talking about it for a while. It's the Democratic 2020 candidate for president of the United States. The most interesting one up on the stage, Marianne Williamson. Marianne, how are you? I'm good, thank you. And thank you so much for having me on. I'm glad it finally happened. Yes, yes. I've been like talking to you directly from the TV. Do you ever watch TV and go, my God, that person yeah. actually said my name? <laughs> Well, actually, that happened with you and me. I, I was watching you one night, and you said, Marion, call me. Yes. <laughs> you know, if there weren't other people in the room, they would think, like, if you told somebody that that happened, they would think that there's something wrong with you, that you think that the person on the TV is talking to you. But uh, that really well, happened. You know, Greg, I think I told you when we spoke once, um, I remember many of your listeners might, but many wouldn't be old enough to remember. There oh, they will be, Marianne. <laughs> Okay, Saturday Night Live, yeah. every Saturday, had a running thing telling the, the Beatles, because mm-hmm. this is when the Beatles had split up, they mm-hmm. were all still alive, yeah. and they, they kept saying on Saturday Night Live that they would give $1,000 <laughs> to the Beatles, that they would get back together. It's just this running joke, right? right? And I read years later in, I think, a Rolling Stone interview that three of them, I think everyone, but it was either everyone but Ringo or everyone but George. I can't remember. They were at somebody's apartment in New York. They were watching, and they actually went so far as to get into a cab. (laughs) And then their lawyers and their agents said, no, you can't, you know, blah, blah, blah. But that would have been such an earth-shattering moment. Yeah. If if the Beatles had walked onto stage, right? You, You know, I still think they're kind of overrated. I'm kidding. No, I'm kidding. I'm the kidding. Beatles are not. Okay. <laughs> as long as, you know, we can disagree on anything. Yes. We, can't, we can't disagree on that. I grew up, you know, I grew up, my parents are no longer living, but my mom, like in the 60s, so I was born in 64, my mom was 40 when she had me, and she had the Beatles playing every day. It was almost like, it was, because I also had some I had sisters that were into rock and roll, but like, you know, I was like, I guess like five, like, Four or five in 1969, 1970. That stuff was always around me, which I thought was uh, just a great thing to have, you know? You, you know, we're living at a time now when there are so many artificially created stars. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's some real talent, don't get me wrong. Mm-hmm. But there are so many stars where years ago the word superstar really meant something. Yes. And I don't think that there's anything in the world now to really compare to these iconic moments of, of just power that emerge from, from popular culture uh, with the Beatles, with Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. even with early Barbara Streisand. Mm-hmm. Um, I remember as a child, like I think it has a lot to do with the we – <laughs> we had limited outlets and limited venues as opposed to now where – 
thing is everything's yeah. just microdosed, right? You can get like yeah. anything you want everywhere. And I, th- I just remember being scared of the Rolling Stones. The, the, like the Rolling Stones, I thought were like old men because I was a young, you know, you're six <laughs> years old, and you could hear their voices. And Mick Jagger, I just thought he was a really old guy. And it turns out he's like was like five years, <laughs> ten years older than me, like in his twenties. But um, I got to ask, funny. so your deadline for qualifying is uh, tonight at 11.59 p.m. This is for the next Dem debate. What do you, are you close? What's it look like? Looks like I didn't make it to yeah. the third one. So I just have to go full bore into the fourth one. So uh, we got those 130,000 unique donors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I came in 2% of the Mount Monmouth poll the other day, mm-hmm. but only 1% in the Quinnipiac yeah. today. So you just kind of roll it over. The way it works is if you don't get into the third, you don't need any more unique donors. Mm -hmm. You just need to still make those 2% in four polls. So I just just need money, really, in (laughs) order to be able to build up the infrastructure in order to get out there enough that uh, I can make those 2% in four polls. Yeah, you know, I I was in the hallway uh, five minutes ago, and I ran into a guy who works at Reason, and we both said the same thing. If you're not on, what's the point of watching? Well, you know, I was, somebody <laughs> said to me today, we should have a hashtag, yeah. boring without her. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. It's, it's, I'm going to make a, a comparison you might not like, but I, I'm, 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 I honestly feel that, like, the whole point, the, the, there's a reason why you stand out because you're, you're, you're a unique personality, but you're also not a politician. And it's so refreshing when you don't have that false stentorian voice that comes from uh, a, pro- uh, a professional politician and, and, and the cadence. And I do think that that's, that's why you are kind of like, I'm going to say this, you're kind of Trumpian. Um, and, and I mean that as a compliment in the sense that you, you stand out from the rest because you're not part of that world. And I think that's why, it's, it's, that's why we always look forward to seeing you up on the stage. Well, thank you. It's going to be interesting um, to watch it without me. <laughs> I am, uh, without, without being there, yes. I am considering doing something where I will do kind of like when they have the State of the Union and then they have the rebuttal. Right. I'm thinking of doing something where I would do something right afterwards along the line of here's what I would have said. Right. Um, that would be great. I'm thinking about it. You think? Yeah, I think that's a great idea because I know – you know what would be funny is it would get probably as much media attention as the debate, you know, because it would be – at least it would be interesting unlike the debate. Because, like, I'm trying to think about – the only thing that people would be watching the debate is what happens between, I guess, Joe and Liz and and Bernie. And it really does seem boring to me. It's like three people who are – I don't know. I don't want to get too negative, but it's it's just like I have I want to make a comparison and I think I might have I don't know if I said this to you over the phone, but I want to make this comparison. So uh, um it's a comparison of observations. So when Donald Trump was running for president, uh, the people around me, the political class, treated it with a a, a level of mockery and disdain. Um but and and I and I include myself as one of the people that treated it with mockery and disdain. Meanwhile, I would leave my building, right, at Fox, and the, the cab drivers, the bouncers at the bars, the security guys, the cops, they couldn't stop talking about Trump. They weren't talking about anybody else. And I ignored everything that they were saying, and, um, and, and I just focused on what was around me, which was my bubble. So this is my observation. I, was, I think Dana said this about, about, about you, Dana Perino. She said, 
when you show up at a network, the anchors and the reporters and the pollsters, they dismiss you in that kind of way. But then the hair and makeup people are practically crying when you're there. So the, there's a there's a similarity and connection that the establishment is blind to. So, like, I'm not I didn't see the Trump attraction the same way the people at the networks don't see the attraction to you. Is that a fair observe similar uh, a, a fair comparison? Well, you know, I have to say that I'd have to add to hair and makeup mm-hmm. all the interns. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. I, I do think and it may or may not turn into political force for me the way it did for uh, mm-hmm. for Trump. But there is something here that reminds me of a Dylan song. Something's going on here, but you don't know what it is. Do right. you, Mr. Jones? Mm-hmm. I think there is a, a passing of the baton. I think that there are many institutional forces uh, who with that believe that what will happen post-Trump is that we will go back to something. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't think that's going to happen. I think the energy is moving in the direction of going forward, not yeah. going backwards. I, I agree. Go ahead. That sorry. doesn't necessarily speak to who the indiv- individuals are mm-hmm. so much as it speaks to what the conversation is. Mm-hmm. And it's weird because when you put it in that perspective, the choice of Biden plays into the idea of going back to where we are. We're put on, you know, I always say that, like, Biden represents that comfy old sweater that you put on after you wore a leather jumpsuit for a weekend. Like Trump is the leather jumpsuit. And like you think that, okay, I'm going to go back and put on the sweater. But I don't think you can go back and put on the sweater. I don't think the sweater fits anymore. Well, but then on the other hand, Greg, and I find this the older I get, Mm -hmm. there are two ways of aging. Yeah. One way of aging is you get sort of set in your ways, and you can see this in people past a certain age. Right. There's two ways you can go. Yeah. One is that people kind of get settled in their ways, mm-hmm. and then there's another kind of aging where people get more rambunctious. So I don't think we totally know Joe, the Joe Biden of today. Yeah. I think we, we, we're assuming some things about Joe Biden, and he's just like the rest of us. People change. People grow. Right. Um, so I, I'm not making assumptions about who he is because I don't want to do that with anybody. But, yeah. Um, and also, look, I'm a Democrat, so I, I want to make sure that, you know, the Democrat, <laughs> whoever the nominee is, me or anyone else, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, I'm very committed to, to that person winning. So, yeah. Um, do but you, I do you think you know, they're paying, do you there's, think there's so much that we don't know yet? Yeah. What do you feel? Do you feel that the age question is, you know, you, you, that this is like, a I don't know, some poll. Uh, which came out yesterday or the day before about like uh, people are worried about the age of the of the of the leading Democrats. Do you think that's a concern or is that just another story peg in a slow summer? You know, the older you are, the more you know something. Mm -hmm. And the younger you are, the more you know other things. Mm. So it's like uh, that wonderful line from Emerson, as I age, my beauty steals inward. Mm. There are certain kind of external powers that we have less of that diminish as we get older. But there is a, a depth of understanding. There is a depth of insight. There's a gravitas. There's a wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, there's an ability to recognize patterns, to have a deeper understanding that issues aren't black and white. So uh, I, it, it works both ways. Yeah, you know- It works both ways. And how individuals and individuals age in different ways. Um, so I, I think that we all just have to, I think, see, this is one of the reasons why I don't think this 
this process should be shut down mm-hmm. because people are processing. This is when people are observing. Right. This is a very critical moment in American history, and we shouldn't be rushing through this moment. Mm-hmm. That's why I have a problem with shutting down and who made the polls. Right. People really need a chance to think all this through. The structure. See who people are. Yeah. The structure is very limiting. I mean, it—, it you know, you when you're up there on that stage, I, I mean, do you think the DNC is treating you fairly? Is it, or is it just the structure that makes it hard for for um, I don't know people to stand out? I don't want to make it about me, so I don't want to make it about me being treated unfairly. I'm not a victim. I'm I'm not a little girl. Mm-hmm. I'm not whining. But do I think it serves the broader exercise of democracy? No, I don't. Mm-hmm. How would they do this better? How could you do this better? Well, let's look at what's happening right now. They're going to go from 20 to 10. Mm-hmm. Why? Why? Mm-hmm. I mean, some people are, people are just starting to listen. Right. They're just starting to really listen. And some of us do not have the financial resources that some of the better-known contenders have. Let us, let us have our opportunity to talk to the voters and let the voters have the opportunity to hear what we're about. Mm-hmm. So there's why the why the rush? Yeah. Really, why the rush? Except to serve the interests of what I call the political media industrial complex. Mm. And I think we should be seeking to serve democracy, and that should be our bottom line. Yeah, and it's. I mean, it. I mean, there are like, I you know, the media. I. I, I controls so much of this when they decide i mean i always talk about trump you know trump wasn't elected by fox news during uh during 2015 we were eating each other alive over the candidates because there were 20 of them i was getting in brutal fights with other people i think i was a rubio person but i also like jim uh jim webb who was a democrat and i get in these like fights but it was cnn and it was it was morning joe on msnbc that were really giving the free airtime to Trump. And I think that when I think that, you know, that's what it's about. It is about airtime. The person who gets more airtime ends up pretty much with the higher name recognition. And and absolutely. You know. Absolutely. And at the beginning of that race, Bernie had the same number of people at his rallies mm-hmm. that Trump had at his. Bernie was hardly mentioned and and Trump was given practically 24 hour right. coverage. Um, I remember the line from uh, Les Moonves, mm-hmm. bad, yes. for, bad for America, but good for CBS. Right. That pretty much says it all. Yeah, yeah. That's, and I think even uh, Zucker admitted as much about that, that it was, you know, Trump brought in the numbers. And now I think they're having this, like, guilty – they've got this guilt complex of what – oh, my well, God, what – you know, what did we do? I want to – you know, they I – the, uh, but they're not doing – how much better are they doing now? Because look at what's happening. Because of only a certain number of people getting into the third debate, now, for instance, CNN is doing a climate change debate. Right. But the only people they're letting into the climate change debate are the people who are in the third DNC debate. Mm. So the public will start to see certain faces and think, oh, they're the only contenders. Right. And that's what's so unfair about the system. Yeah. And that's um, – I guess the climate thing is seven hours long. <laughs> that's pretty it's amazing. No, it's the, they're doing a they're doing a a climate change special, and it's seven hours long. It, they they released it yesterday. I hope I'm I'm pretty sure it's seven hours long. I'm looking over at my producers. They're they're all nodding yes. So that's going to be um, 
And they, I think What's each can be? each candidate gets like forty minutes or forty five minutes if I, re- I if I remember. But um, wow, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Wow. Yes, I know. Wow. <laughs> wow. Settle in, kids. Yeah, it's a town hall. It's a seven hour town hall. I was just told. Yeah. On climate change. That's pretty fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. But you know what I find striking, too, about your candidacy, and I mentioned it to you when we first talked, is that you're, you're, you're kind of taking the psychological path, not the political policy one. You do have policies. You have, you've actually got some pretty thorough plans that involving uh, you know, a peace, you know, the, the peace department and, re- and reparations. But I find that what you're doing is different in the sense that you are approaching this as a psychological challenge, am, is, am I right or I think I, I, well, the way I look at, I mean, I certainly understand what you're saying to me. It, if you need to transform your life, mm-hmm. you have to return to principles. That's mm-hmm. where we get off in life. It's when we have no principles mm-hmm. and the United States has forgotten what our principles are. We've forgotten our mission statement. And those are the principles in the declaration of independence. And every generation has to psychologically and emotionally rebond with them. This isn't about left versus right. This is about the American principle versus that which is not principle. Mm-hmm. And that's where we have swerved. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think that we transform our lives and we transform systems and we transform a country from the inside out by taking a good, brutally honest look and asking ourselves, where is this policy aligned with our democratic principles, and where is it not? That should be our lodestar. Mm-hmm. That should be our guiding principle. Not economic principle, mm-hmm. but democratic principle. And yes, it's psychological in that democracy is, a, is not just a, 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 a way of governance. It's a philosophical perspective. Mm-hmm. Democracy, the idea of all men created equal, the idea of all men given by God inalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And then let's not forget what comes after that in the Declaration. What comes after that is that governments are instituted to secure those rights. And when government is not doing its job, it is the right of the people to alter it or abolish it. Mm-hmm. That's rambunctious. Yeah. That's the, re- that's the healthy rebellion of 1776. And I think every generation has to re-up its commitment and re-enroll in that commitment to democracy. It doesn't just give us rights. It gives us responsibilities that in our time, those principles are protected, they're honored, they're furthered, and they are bequeathed to our children mm-hmm. in even better shape than we found them. Mm-hmm. Now, you, so that's an internal process. That's psychological and emotional and philosophical every bit as much as it has to do with specific policies. But I, you know what the thing is? I, I guess I'm, I feel and, may, and, and this is and I, and I could be wrong uh, that when I when I, I look at how social how social media, I feel like there's a there's a certain kind of, I don't know, America that has broken apart. That that there there obviously there's people talk about polarization. People uh, people go to their silos and read what they want to read, and then you have social media where you have status on constant display, which is creating an alienation or a desire for impact. People are, uh, and and then you hear about mass shootings, and you see like there seems to be. I think there's a weird kind of undercurrent that has nothing to do with politics at all. 
but this kind of it's kind of like a breaking up of people and community so that people feel like they don't have an impact and then that impact is directed on social media so they go after people on social media or they strike out violently as a way to as as a way to somehow create some infamy am i making any sense i don't know <laughs> well you're absolutely making sense and and we all feel it mm-hmm. and it's why it's so important right now that we shore up what remains mm-hmm. look at you and me right now mm-hmm. you're a republican i'm a democrat we're doing what traditionally americans have done we didn't make our political differences right. divide us. We realized that the conversation is the grand yin and yang of American politics. Like Eisenhower said, the American mind at its best is both liberal and conservative. Right. But when you go on social media, you're not in conversation necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why parents have got to say to the kids, no tablet at the table. Yeah. We're going to actually talk. Yeah. We're going to have conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, people used to say to me, um, I would go someplace, and people would say, we're not going to talk about religion or politics. And I would think to myself, that sure leaves me out of dinner. <laughs> I mean, you know, we have become this this society where nobody talks about anything meaningful because we have lost the art of honorable conversation. Mm-hmm. Because the art of of honorable conversation is not one where everybody necessarily agrees. In fact, if anything, it's one where it's understood. No one has a monopoly on truth. Right. No one has a monopoly on truth. We're all, we can all learn things from each other. Yes. And um, that's what we need to get back to, and that's why conversations like what you and I are having are very, very healthy and important. It's, um, you know, it's interesting. why I'm grateful to be here. Well, I'm, I, 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 I'm excited about this, too, even though I, I feel like I disagree with you probably on half of your policy stuff. But I'm more I'm, I am interested in, I think, in our what we agree on, which I do think there is a and I'm not I'm agnostic. I am. I would say that I pro, I'm not a spiritual person, but I can sense a hollowing, a hollowing out of of our country. Uh, and I, I do think it might have something to do with social media in the sense that um, we – when we communicate on social media, we, we don't see our faces. We don't see our, hear our voices. And so it, it, it makes it easier for this generation to be more brutal to each other. So you can like – you don't have this kind of, kind of connection. That's why people are terrible now at conversations and are terrible in debates because – they just want to turn you off or block you or 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 say something about your mother or whatever. I think that's part of it has to do with this disconnect from the actual human interaction. Well, I have a couple things to say about that. First of all, in terms of the political debates, that has to do with the way the media sets mm-hmm. it up, too. Yeah, that's true. They just throw these questions. I mean, I can't blame that on the candidates. You know, yeah. that's what the media did. Mm-hmm. But the the place where I get the most upset regarding what you just talked about, Mm -hmm. was when I see little children, like early childhood, two-year-olds, three-year-olds, at a a table in a restaurant with a bunch of adults at the table, and this little baby is is holding a tablet. Mm -hmm. Now, that's the age when that child should be looking around the table, their little brain should be learning social clues, social cues, how people talk to each other, how people look to each other. That child at the age of two, at the age of three, is already being trained that people are peripheral. Mm -hmm. That's off 
fall. Exactly. That spells disaster for our future. Yeah. The and other- that, that's where I'm, I'm very upset about it, actually, when I see all these little ones with tablets, rather than looking at the sky and looking at the trees and looking at mommy and looking at daddy, looking at other people and looking at, you know, looking at life. Yeah. Looking at life. Because we know there's an addictive quality here. Of course. I and mean, I see that in my own life. Yeah. And we're doing this with these little ones. Oh. It's a, there's a dope, it, it is like hitting that dopamine the, uh, little sensation. And, and you know what, you, when you're talking, what, what they're looking at on the tablet, the other thing that bu- really bugs me is that they're looking at what other people have. And we didn't know, when I grew up, I didn't know anything about money. Like, I didn't know how much my dad made. And I didn't know what my, na- my neighbors made. I didn't know anything about Billy's family was, like, we weren't wealthy. We were lower middle class. But I had no idea that all my friends were richer. I didn't know that. But on Instagram, you can see the status of every single person. And somebody is having a better birthday party if you're 12 years old and you weren't invited to that birthday party, right? Or you weren't, there's a bigger birthday party, even bigger. So what what, what social media does is it actually creates a incredible status anxiety that I don't think ever existed before. I didn't. Ha- I but didn't. I didn't worry about I it. Think tele- now, when I was a kid, when you watch shows, started with television. Mm-hmm. When you look at Mary Tyler, like the Mary Tyler Moore show, mm-hmm. look at their house. Mm-hmm. Look at the the Lucy show. Look yep. at their apartment. Mm-hmm. Everything started to change with lifestyles of the rich and famous. Yes. Dynasty. Yes. Yes. Prince of Bel Air, mm-hmm. you could really see how, or mm-hmm. the honey, look at the honeymooners, look mm-hmm. at how modest their apartment was. That's so true, so yeah. When I was growing up, it wasn't, like you said, I didn't even know what a super wealthy person's house looked like. Exactly. Now that's all I see. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. You know, yeah. and I think, th- of course, why isn't mine like that? Yeah. And I think that, I mean, when you don't have community, and you don't have, I would say, a religious or a spiritual element. You have these now these young white males who are, you know, prone to, like they, they've replaced suicide with suicide homicide. You know, it's like it's that is a trend that I believe is somehow linked to this. And I have no evidence to back this up. This is just my feeling: is that it's somehow linked to this to the status anxiety that I am worthless. I am worthless. Um, I have no community. I have no friends. No chance of having a romantic relationship. Uh, I see what everybody else has. I'm going to go out with a bang. So it's no longer suicide. It's suicide homicide. I don't know. I I, I don't know. I see that as maybe it's a symptom of the greater problem. So this is what I see as the good news about the bad news. Mm -hmm. That you and I are talking about it. Mm -hmm. That everybody, there's a consensus among us that something's really wrong yeah, And I think a society processes, a, com- a society has a conversation with itself. You know, American, partly I think because we're so young, the American character is such that we're very good with a to-do list. Yeah. Historically, if we had a problem, just tell us what to do. Right. Kill the Nazis, mm-hmm. kill the Japanese. You know, mm-hmm. we knew what to do. Yeah. We're, this is the first time in our history where there aren't bullet points. Yeah. That, that hit all the things that we need to do, and then if we only do them, it will be fixed. Right. And it's forcing us into a deeper place within ourselves where you have to hold the problem itself from a deeper place. Mm-hmm. And some of that has to do with grief, that mm-hmm. we're just, how, how awful is this, what you and I are saying? Mm-hmm. How awful that you and I 
are even talking like this. Well, what are we going to do about the fact that all the kids are killing themselves and killing other people before they die? Mm -hmm. I mean, but we're holding it in a place of not yelling at someone like it's their fault. Mm -hmm. And so what you and I are doing, Greg, really is, um, is the solution because the solution isn't a bunch of bullet points, but the solution is a deeper conversation and an unwillingness to avoid the conversation. But the you know, and the thing is, when you talk about it's an interesting comparison about the past being bullet points. It is, and now we don't have that. And the re, the reason is, is maybe those big things had have been kind of taken care of. Now we have this incredible leisure time. We live longer, and we but we we don't need. We think we don't need these things like family, spirituality anymore. But we, but we're grappling with these issues now because we, we solved the other things, and now we're stuck with this other stuff that you know. And- well, that's that, that's a well-to-do white person's perspective mm-hmm. because if you actually look at the majority of Americans, I don't think that our our um, life expectancy we're, we're actually headed down. Yeah, that's true. The, the opioid our stuff. Leisure time. Yeah, yeah. And, and our and our and our leisure time too. It's headed down. It's only a small portion of the population. Yeah. That has more time and more lifespan. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, so I think the fact that so many millions of people are living at this survival mm-hmm. in this chronic economic tension and anxiety. That is where so much of this societal malfunction comes from, mm-hmm. and that's why I feel that all public policy should be guided by the principle of whatever helps people thrive. That's where you get peace from, and that's where you get prosperity from. Help people thrive. Mm -hmm. Help people unleash their dreams. Help people unleash their natural creativity, their natural productivity. Then they find peace. Then you have peace in the society. Then you have time to be with your kids, to be with your spouse, to go to a PTA meeting, to be a good citizen. And that's how we have prosperity because people are better employers and better employees. It really is. Let's just get back to what makes people happy inside, and these things will work themselves out. Mm-hmm. I don't have much time left, but I wanted to ask you about one of your um, one of your the the things that you were talking a lot about is reparations. And I'm always I'm I'm I would say I'm, I'm I I from my initial responses, not in a million years, but it's something that I will I'm, I want to hear about because I'm more interested not about just the idea because I do think the idea depends on what you call reparation. What are the reparations? But how do you do it? Like I don't know how it's possible to figure it out, figure this out, and and that's where the difficulty is for me. It's not the idea. It's just that is the idea even possible? Well, first of all, as with everything else. You start with the principle, Mm -hmm. and the principle is a moral one. Mm -hmm. It's just like Catholics go to confession, Mm -hmm. Jews go to Yom Kippur. It's the holiest day of the year. You confess your sins to God. It's the Day of Atonement. In Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to admit the exact nature of your character defects, take a fearless moral inventory, um, and make amends where you can. This is a principle Mm -hmm. of human transformation, both secular and and. Religious. So where I'm coming from, as someone running for president and wanting to help this country navigate through these turbulent times, end one chapter and beginning a new one, mm-hmm. is that a country no less than an individual cannot have the future we want unless and until we are willing to clean up the past. Mm-hmm. Now, I do not feel the average American is a racist. I don't. Mm-hmm. But I do think the average American is woefully undereducated about the history of race. Mm -hmm. So just 
Yeah, Sunday. This what was what is what is today? Today's Tuesday, right? Wait, where are we? Wednesday. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, this last Sunday was the 400th anniversary mm-hmm. of the landing of the first ship, 1619, right. in Jamestown, Virginia, carrying enslaved people. Now, it was from that day. It took almost 250 years before slavery was abolished in the United States. It, was abol- it wasn't abolished until 1865. Right. And by the time slavery was abolished, there are estimated to have been between four and five million slaves. Mm-hmm. Now, that was followed by another hundred years of institutionalized violence against black people, mm-hmm. lynchings, black code laws, Ku Klux Klan, segregation, Jim Crow, and so forth. Right. So in 1964, you were you were just a little kid. I was born. That's my year. Okay, you were born, <laughs> but you probably don't remember. Yeah. In 1964, they passed the Civil Rights Act, which dismantled segregation. In 1965, they passed the Voting Rights Act, which gave black people full voting rights, although mm-hmm. that started being chipped away at in 2013. The issue of economic restitution mm-hmm. was simply not achieved yet. I mean, our other generations did a lot, but they didn't get there. Mm-hmm. And as Martin Luther King would say 100 years after the end of the Civil War, they were freed, but what were they freed to? Mm-hmm. So what we've got is a situation where a, an economic gap that existed in 1865 has never been closed. And it wasn't closed in those first 100 years, mainly because the 40 acres and a mule that had been promised by the federal government to every former slave family of four was then rescinded. Mm -hmm. And then there have been many times in those years since when black wealth would begin to be accumulated Mm -hmm. and then state and local uh, governments would thwart those efforts. So, you know, Greg, Germany has paid $89 billion to Jewish organizations since World War II. Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean the Holocaust didn't happen. Right. But it has gone far towards establishing reconciliation Mm -hmm. between Germany and the Jews of Europe. Right. And so, and Ronald Reagan, by the way, in 1988, he signed the American Civil Liberties Act. Every surviving prisoner from the Japanese internment camps was given between $20,000 and $22,000. So my plan, you have a reparations council, mm-hmm. stip- and all of them are descended from, uh, from uh, enslaved uh, Americans, uh, and they come from a broad array of culture and academia and politics. And the stipulation on the part of the U.S. government is that the money is to be used for the purposes of economic and educational renewal. Mm-hmm. Now, Greg, what does that mean? That means the money is a stimulus. Right. The money is an economic stimulus. The money is not a cost. The money is a benefit. I was reading an article on CBS.com just a few days ago. If black families earned as much as white families, our economy would be $1.5 trillion larger. Mm-hmm. So when you're talking about putting money into whether it's historical black colleges or black uh, uh, chambers of Commerce or uh, venture capital for black business, whatever it is, you're talking about a stimulant within the economy. Mm-hmm. So we're not talking about money that we that we lose. Right. It is money that by definition expands. Well, you convinced so me. So I see it as a gift. <laughs> yes. That means a lot to me, Greg. Thank you. Yeah. No, I think, I mean, you, you've definitely, you know, 
that's a that's a persuasive argument. And I do think that like whatever the reparations are, it has to be something that has to do with education or or or, or like an economic even even if it oh, involves and also even if it like land. You know, like I look at what Bill Pulte is doing in Detroit with the with the, the um what, what's it called the blight blight authority. Mm-hmm. You know, you know, mm-hmm. just if you there's so much land available and and and. If you could pair people up with with, with with land, I mean, how? I mean, God knows we have a lot of land, but I haven't put as much thought into it as you have. It's so. pretty funny to hear you say that, actually, because that's what uh, I've heard black people talking about that. And you're the first white person I've ever <laughs> heard say land. So that's pretty fascinating. You know, it's funny because a few minutes ago you said something like, I agree with about half your <laughs> ideas. But we can talk about where we agree. And I was thinking, you know, actually the more interesting conversation would be in the places where we don't necessarily agree, but so that we can share the ideas. So this is great. Yeah, excellent. Well, Marianne, uh, if you, I, I'm looking forward to seeing your rebuttal after the debate. <laughs> and uh, and, and uh, if you're in New York, you got to come and say hello and uh, do the show. And, um, thank you, Greg. Thank, thank you. you. This was an absolute pleasure. And best of luck. Thank you. It's a delightful talking to you. Thank you for having me. You got it. Take care. Cutlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cutlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.